We have printed this in your bulletin for those of you that didn't bring your Bible. But if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to uh, go to Acts chapter 21. We'll be looking at 17 through 26. Um, by way of reminder before we read it, let me just remind you that Paul has been on a missionary journey. And at the tail end of this missionary journey, he wants to go back to Jerusalem. He's like, he's been, he's been preparing for this moment uh, he's been gathering a collection for the Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are likely experiencing persecution. And in chapter 21, verse 17, he arrives in Jerusalem. His missionary journey is done, and he comes back to Jerusalem. And what we'll read here is his first interaction as he arrives in Jerusalem. This is what he experiences. So with that being said, let me read God's word, starting in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, that is Luke, Paul, and his other people, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related, by one, all, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, that is, believed in Jesus. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men. The next day, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. One of the most <clears throat> profound moments when the um, ruling elder uh, elect and will be installed tonight um, were being tested by the um, overseeing um, body, the elders overseeing our work, one of the most profound questions that they asked them was this question. Knowing what you know now, guys, knowing all, all of the constitution of the church, knowing all the theology, knowing all the scripture, here's the one question that I have for you. How could you destroy the church? And he asked these guys the question, how can you destroy? Knowing what you know, how can you destroy the church? And I'll tell you what, that's a, that's a tough question. But with power comes the power to destroy something. And it, was a, it, was a, it just caught me off guard, and I really loved the way that the question was asked. And, and, and uh, the guys that were being tested, they answered, um, I thought, very well. But then the elders spoke to it very uh, clearly, and I thought it was very helpful uh, for them. They said, look, the quickest way to kill a church is that you guys are not all together. There's going to be decisions that you're making that you're gonna be actually on different sides of the table. Like, if, if four guys say yes to this and two guys say no, there is going to be division in amongst the elders. 
But when you leave the room, you better be unified together. The fastest way to destroy the church is the leadership is broken. And there's disunity. I think that that's a fitting question for the church today. What's the fastest way to destroy this church? What's the fastest way for this church to go from what we have now? And it, I realize it's, we're not a big church, but God has done some amazing things. But what's the fastest way that we could have this to having nothing? What's the fastest way? And I think the answer is similar, disunity. You know where disunity comes from? Rumors. Gossip. This is exactly what the church in Jerusalem was experiencing in, in, in Acts chapter 21. There were rumors about Paul. And we have a lot to celebrate, but we as a church still have a lot to learn. And one of the things that I think is so important for us to learn is how do we become unified? What's it gonna take to be unified? And, and hear me out, rumors are gonna happen. And, and my speaking into this, this is not trying to control the fact that rumors happen, but when we hear rumors, what do we do? Well, I want us to follow in the footsteps of the Jerusalem church because I think they handled it incredibly well. One of the most fascinating parts about this particular text is that there is a, certainly a problem. Paul comes from the mission field and he comes to Jerusalem and he's all excited and they glorify God, glorify God when they hear all the things that God has done. And there were very particular things that Paul told them, literally detail uh, accounts of all that God has done and they glorified God. But then when that was done, the, the leaders came and they said, Paul, we've got to talk to you about something. There's a lot of fear in our church about you. They think that you're trying to abandon the law that God has put before us. They think you're trying to get rid of things. It's a big issue. How does the Christian church deal with the law of Moses? Paul speaks to it a lot in his letters. What do we do about this? And guess what? They come up with a plan. Paul says, I'll do this plan. And he follows it to a T. And then we never hear about it again. This rumor that was going around the Jerusalem church, this, this rumor that was tempting to split Paul from the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, this thing that could have split the church in half, it never gets talked about again in the rest of the Bible. It never does. And the question is why? I'm going to look at, we're going to look at three reasons why it never gets talked about again. Because I think what we have here is a church that handles the rumors, that has the, the, the ability to split the church, and it deals with it very well. How do we deal with the rumors that, that can split a church up? How do we follow in the footsteps of churches before us that we too would be unified? Well, there's three characteristics of the Jerusalem church and of Paul that I think we need to follow, okay? There's three. The first characteristic that I think we need to see the compassion, the compassion of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Compassion. These Christian leaders were without a doubt very compassionate about the situation at hand. James and the elders, when they first hear Paul, what do they do? Do they immediately jump into addressing the rumors that was tempting to split the church? No. They rejoice. Paul doesn't come into this situation and they're like, we need to talk. 
I mean, they get to that, but they, they first spend time glorying in all that God has done and, and, and embracing one another. What compassionate hearts. I mean, when someone um, you haven't seen in a long time, but you gotta, you gotta say something, when someone, see, like, it's kind of awkward to just be like, oh, we gotta talk. No, they were incredibly compassionate with Paul, who had just spent time coming to Jerusalem, and they're deeply compassionate. Their understanding of what he's gone through, and they glory. And when they're done glorying what God has done, dealing with him, then, then they say, Paul, we gotta talk about something. And with this, we see also their compassion. Their compassion for the Jewish Christians that they have been called to serve as a church. All of these rumors are spreading around their church. And I can imagine them sitting in a room. How do we deal with keeping what Paul is teaching to all these other Christians? How do we, with clarity, teach our church what is true and right about Paul? We don't want Paul and the people that we are called to serve to split. You see their compassionate hearts. They have a desire to shepherd their people. They're full of compassion. It's compassion for their people, compassion for Paul that drives them to their strategic implementation of a plan. Without compassion, man, rumors will run wild. But with compassion, the church can lean into the situation with whatever situation that is at hand and compassionately deal with it so that when, these, when the strategy that's come up with is implemented, it might be trusted and this is what the church has. It is a trusted plan. A long time ago, when I was first in ministry, I was dealing with my boss who was um, just not having his best day. And I didn't know how to deal with it. He's my boss. And, and so I remember getting with some of my coworkers and saying, well, how do we deal with this? Now, I had a heart for this man and I also had a heart for myself not wanting to get crushed. And so with courage and with a compassionate heart as, I, as much as I could, I went above him to his boss. And I said, look, I'm not trying to get this guy fired. I just simply am getting crushed. And so many other people are getting crushed with this situation. And so his boss ends up going to him and dealing with the situation. And, and when it was resolved, my boss comes to me and he says, Dan, I want to thank you. Because if it came directly from you, I would never have listened. Thank you for having the compassion to, to wisely, strategically think the not spreading rumors, but dealing with it. I thank you for that. And we're going to see some changes in me. One of the ways that we deal with the rumors that spread is compassion. Like, hey, there's often two sides to every story. You know that, right? Have compassion for, for both parties. Like, you can get critical of the Jews in this particular story. Be like, hey, like, there's a lot of things that Jesus accomplished that'll freeze you from the things that he hears. But Paul's also not getting rid of all these things. We need to deal with this compassionately. So we dress rumors with compassion. The second characteristic that I think the church needs to embrace with regards to rumors and the way we, we face the rumors is submission or submissiveness. I think one of the most striking characteristics of this particular story, and 
Trust me, it's not a compelling story. I realize that, okay? But one of the most compelling characteristics of this particular text is Paul's submissiveness to the elders. You want to talk about a bowl in a china shop? We're talking about Paul with regards to theology. We're talking about Paul with regards to his convictions. If Paul has a conviction, he is sticking to it. And if you challenge it, he has some choice words for you. But in this particular case, around some theological realities, Paul is not a bull in a china shop. He's actually very submissive. He hears the elder's plan, and he just says, sure, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do exactly what you tell me, and he does it. I don't know if he understands the full scope of it, but I think more than anything, Paul practices what he's preaching, that he, an apostle, an apostle of all apostles, is still subject to the church himself. And he submits himself to the elders in Jerusalem and does it. You want to know why there's no rumors? It's because Paul puts into practice what the church compassionately put before him. He just submits to it. And we never hear about this story again. He was submissive. Church, if there is a way for us to squelch the rumors that can divide this church, one, it's going and talking to the elders. Rather than spreading rumors, it's going and talking to the elders. Look, there's things that get done. We make actions, and, and, and those actions, they, they create uh, movement. It, it's almost like tectonic plates. And I, like, I don't control all those things, and you're going to react to those things. And, and, and you'll probably talk amongst each other. And I'm not telling you to not talk amongst each other. But when you get troubled in your soul, the thing that you need to do is to go talk to the leaders. And when they come up with a plan, submit to it. To those of you that are members of this church, there's one vow that we ask you to take. You're going to hear this vow because when Carson comes and he's baptized, we're going to ask this vow. Do you promise to promote the purity and peace of the church? Will you, will you not gossip? Will you not spread rumors going on in this church? We're going to make decisions. There's going to be action. But go and talk to the church. Go to talk to the leaders. And when they come up with a plan, submit to it. Paul does it. You know, you can talk. We're not making perfect decisions. But Lord willing, we make decisions, but before you, and, and, and I hope that you can understand that, 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 that making decisions is not always the easiest thing to do, but submit to it. Promote the purity and the peace by coming and speaking to the elders and listening to what the elders have for us and how we might operate. Do not spread rumors. Do not gossip. Go to the elders. Pursue the purity and the peace of the church by not gossiping. Find clarity on the situation. Submit to them. So this characteristic is vitally important for you, the church, to submit. And the church obviously also must have compassion. But there's a third perspective. There's a third characteristic that is vitally important so that rumors don't divide the church. And that's this. It's a perspective. It's a perspective. 
The third characteristic that's so vitally important for the church to have is a perspective. And here's the perspective. The perspective is this, that what the church, what the church does, no, let me say this differently. There's a corporate reality to the church that's connected to Christ. And these people, the James and the elders and Paul understood this, that the church is the body of Christ. It is the, the visible manifestation of Christ on this earth. <laughs> and that the, the one thing that is so vitally important is that the church is united. This is exactly what Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer in John 17. The last prayer that we have of Jesus, he's saying, may the church be one as we are one. But, but, but Paul understood this even more. On the road to Damascus, as he's going to persecute the Christians that are in Damascus, Jesus himself shows up on the road. And do you remember what Jesus tells Paul? What does he say to, to Paul? Why are you persecuting what? Me. There is a corporate reality to the church. This is the body of Christ. And what these elders understood and what Paul understood is that the church is the representation of Christ on this earth. And that if you split this up, it, it, it's, it's like, and I want to be careful here, it is not who God is. If the church is split, God is not split, but is a visible representation of what would it be like to be split off in the church. And these leaders understood it. And they were zealous to keep the unity of the church. So their compassion was rooted in their understanding that the church and the corporate reality of the church is Christ. And Paul understood it. And so Paul understood this, and so he was submissive to the church and their decision. It was this perspective that the church is who Christ died for. Look, we are, most of us are Americans. I, I can't speak for everyone. But most of us live in this individualistic society and culture. And one of the things about this individualistic society that we live in is that we lose the sense of communal identity. And we need to embrace the communal identity that, that exists in this. And that one of the things that we must be zealous about in this perspective is that this is Christ's body. Let us not let rumors divide us. This is Christ's body. Let us be one. Do you know why Christ prayed for unity? If you have a Bible, I want you to go there. I want you to see this. Why did Christ pray for unity? What is his perspective? It's John 17, 13, 23. This is what he says. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And here's why. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. There's the reason for unity. We might be a visible representation of the very love of God for the world. When we are one, people understand the love of God. So we must embrace this perspective, this corporate reality of the church, that when we divide, huh, we actually display a divided Christ, and Christ is not divided. James and the elders understood this. Paul understood this. So they were compassionate and they were submissive as a result. Church, 
Rumors can divide us. Gossip can crush this place. But when we are united, we can display the love of God to one another and to the world. And we can become a light unto the world. Let us do that. Let us remember that. Let me pray.